This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is Part 5 in our series on the creeds, in which we'll be taking a look at the First Council of Constantinople. In Part 3, we looked at the First Council of Nicaea that was held in 325. While the Church had a lot to deal with in the decades that followed, they didn't convene another council for almost 60 years. And before we dive into that Second Council... We need to back up a bit because it can get confusing keeping track of all of these councils and how they relate to the creeds. Both the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches recognize what's called the first seven ecumenical councils. Now, don't be confused by that word ecumenical. Today, the word carries the connotation of bringing together disparate groups. But as it's applied to these councils, Ecumenical meant that church leaders from every region and every branch of the faith were invited to be a part. There were other councils that took place after the 7th, but it's only these that both the Eastern and Western churches recognize as legit. It ought to be noted that the Oriental Orthodox Church only accepts the first three councils, while the Nestorian Church of the East only accepts the first two. And to complicate matters just a bit more, there was a council between the 6th and the 7th that's called the Quinisext Council that the Eastern Orthodox Church accepts as legit, while Rome does not. The reason this council isn't given an ordinal number like the rest is because it didn't deal with any issues of theology. It dealt more with liturgical and organizational issues that had not been resolved by the 6th Council, so it was considered to be an extension of that council. While Rome ignores the Quinisext Council and the Eastern Orthodox Church only recognizes the first seven, Rome then embraces later councils that the Eastern Church doesn't. All right, with that out of the way, let's turn now to the Second Ecumenical Council, which is the First Council of Constantinople. As you'll remember from a couple of episodes ago, the Council of Nicaea in 325 addressed the challenge of Arianism and the identity of Christ. They settled on the wording for their creed that Jesus was very God of very God. Contrary to what the heretic Arius taught, Christ wasn't a created being that God then used to create everything else. Certain modern authors and New Age spiritualists would have us believe that the Emperor Constantine manipulated the Council of Nicaea to this end for some sinister political ambition and then by royal fiat waved his scepter and Christianized the empire, enforcing his decree with the sword and made Arian believers conform. But as we've seen, that's just not the case, not by a mile. The fact is, the problem of Arianism remained, and over the next decades, Roman emperors favored a form of Arianism. It was they who persecuted Nicene Christians, not the other way around. When 80 priests petitioned the Emperor Valens, who was a rabid Arian supporter, to reconsider an appointment he'd made that was highly controversial, well, he rounded them up, put them in a boat, launched it from the shore, and had burning arrows shot into it so that they all burned to death. Yeah, so that whole Constantine made Christianity the only acceptable religion line that so many love to repeat, that just doesn't hold up. By 381, 
While Orthodox Nicene Christians weren't facing the same kind of persecution they had under some of the emperors before Constantine, they were still caught up in a struggle for their faith, this time with people who claimed that their Arianism was the true faith. And we've got the emperor on our side. Neener, neener, neener. Now, we might think that the Nicene Council and Creed dealt the death blow to Arianism. It didn't, because Arians finagled a way to conform to Nicaea without giving away their key ideas. Arius had taught that Christ was a created being. Some Arians, who came to be called the semi-Arians, claimed that Christ was like God. They appealed to some old language that the church had used to answer the objections of those who said that there was no difference between the Father and the Son. That was answered by saying that Christ is like God, meaning that he's like the Father. He's like the Father, but he isn't the Father. They're two persons. Well, that language which had been accepted by earlier Christians, was picked up by the semi-Arians, who had become the new standard bearers for Arianism. And they said, hey, look, we're only saying the same thing that earlier Christians said. You can't condemn us without condemning them too. But of course, they applied the phrase, like God, to a completely different application. They weren't saying the same thing as those earlier Christians. At first, the Orthodox Nicene church leaders showed the semi-Arians grace and accepted them as Orthodox believers. But it didn't take long before the true colors of the Arians came out. What outed them was their position on the Holy Spirit. Now, Nicaea hadn't said much about the Spirit, only that the Orthodox believe in him as a member of the Trinity. But the super-precise verbiage that had marked their identification of Christ was absent in regard to the Spirit. Arians, on the other hand, clinging tenaciously to a single person as God, said that the Holy Spirit was merely an impersonal force, a kind of spiritual influence. The Orthodox understood the biblical teaching that the Holy Spirit is a person who is co-equal with the Father and the Son. They regarded the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. So, another council was called after the death of the Arian Emperor Valens to settle the issue. To be fair, let's give the Arians some ground to stand on to present their case for why the Holy Spirit ought to be regarded as a force rather than a divine person. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 is quoted in Acts 2 and has God promising... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Well, the Arians asked, how can a person be poured out? In Psalm 51, David asked God not to take the Holy Spirit from him. Now, that seems to say that the spirit is something that God uses rather than a person who acts. In the New Testament, the spirit seems to be described as a state of being, like when the disciples are filled with the spirit and that the spirit can be quenched. The Arians maintained that if such passages referred to a person, it would be unlike any other person we've ever encountered, to the point where we'd have to redefine what it means to be a person. The Arians then looked outside of Scripture to the way that the Holy Spirit was spoken of in some of the church traditions and rituals. Oftentimes, the wording of such applied better to a power or a force than to a person. For example, a 3rd century liturgy spoke of the church as the place where the Spirit abounds. Well, that kind of language just is never used for the Father and the Son. Another reason the Arians managed to get away with all of this for a while was because 
To be frank, the church didn't possess a full-orbed, well-rounded, and thoroughly biblical theology for the Holy Spirit yet. It was this controversy that helped develop it. That came when Orthodox Church leaders went to Scripture to see what it taught about the Holy Spirit. And while there were verses that could be understood as referring to an impersonal spirit, Gregory of Nazianzus found many more passages that cast this spirit in personal terms that could not be connected to a mere force or power. A greater thing can do a lesser, but a lesser thing cannot do a greater. A person can do something a mere power or force can do, but a mere force cannot do what only a person can do. So the Bible said that the Holy Spirit can be grieved, can be lied to, the Spirit can speak, and the Spirit consoles. And if the Arians wanted to appeal to long-standing church rituals to back up their position, what about the fact that since the beginning, new believers were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? During the discussions of the First Council of Constantinople, Orthodox Church leaders were concerned that the Arian doctrine of the Spirit undercut God's promise to personally dwell in and with his people. He didn't send them a force. He came himself in the person of the Spirit. The Christian life isn't merely one that's given some extra juice by the impartation at baptism of a dose of spiritual energy, as the Arians claimed. The Christian life is nothing less than, as Paul had said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Christ himself living in and through us by the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. When it was clear to church leaders that Arianism had resurged and threatened to once again co-opt the faith, they convened a council in early 381. They asked Emperor Theodosius to send out official invitations summoning church leaders. Though Western church leaders did not attend the council, they accepted its conclusions as though they had been present and had participated in ratifying its conclusions. The emperor recused himself from any part in the council and left it to the bishops to settle the matter among themselves. Miletius of Antioch was selected to preside at the council, but he died shortly after it was convened. Gregory of Nazianzus, the recently installed patriarch of Constantinople, took his place. Gregory, as one of the Cappadocian fathers, was a scholar's scholar. He was also a committed Orthodox Nicene. Because Arianism prevailed in the East for decades before Theodosius' rule, the Patriarchate of Constantinople had been filled by Arian bishops. Gregory was something utterly new. He was also exhausted by the time that the council began. Finding himself suddenly thrust in the role of presiding over it, he regarded the political squabbling over appointing a replacement for Bishop Miletius in the important leadership of the Church of Antioch too much, and he resigned. Theodosius was loath to grant him his request, but was persuaded by Gregory's impassioned appeal and released him. The council was then led by Nectarius, an unbaptized civil official. Unlike some of the later councils, this one was mostly free of political pressure and focused on theological issues, both sides being well represented. 
The decision of the council favored the position of the Orthodox, which had been carefully crafted by Gregory of Nazianzus. Instead of coming up with a new creed, the Nicene Creed was clarified and expanded to say, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. Now, I want to ask you to put a little mental footnote in here, because we're going to come back to this in a later episode. The Western Church added a few more words to this later. That addition was never accepted by the East and became a major point of contention that goes on to this day. This Constantinopolitan revised Nicene Creed left not a millimeter's worth of wiggle room for the Arians. The Holy Spirit was now clearly identified as a divine person who fulfills a role that God reserves for himself. He's the giver of life, both physical and spiritual, intimately connected with the Father and not a separate deity, who deserves to be the object of worship and who's been active in the process of salvation throughout history. This council put the last theological nail in Arianism's coffin. It was now officially banned. Updating the Nicene Creed wasn't all that the council did. They also condemned as heresy the doctrine of Apollinarianism, which denied the dual nature of Christ, attributing only a divine nature to him. The council also granted the imperial church at Constantinople an honorary primacy over all other churches excepting Rome. Coming as the third canon, or ruling of the council, it reads, quote, The bishop of Constantinople, however, shall have the prerogative of honor after the bishop of Rome because Constantinople is the new Rome, unquote. Now remember, Western bishops weren't present at the Council of Constantinople. This canon was a first step in the rising importance of the just 50-year-old new capital. What's remarkable is that by elevating Constantinople, it demoted older churches that figured far more centrally in the early history of Christianity. What about churches like Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria? In fact, that was the very pushback that Rome gave. While the Roman church would go on later and use this canon to assert its supremacy over other churches, they protested the diminished status of the other traditional church centers. Mm-hmm.